Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 118, and today's guest is Sam Dunn, co-founder and CEO at Robin. I have a strong appreciation for entrepreneurs, as it is really hard to build and scale a business. But starting a company while you are still in college is a whole different ballgame that requires guts and determination. Sam, along with his twin brother Zach and Brian Muse, the third co-founder and CTO, have never worked professionally for anyone else. They started One Mighty Roar while they were still in college, and that business eventually turned into what is now Robin. Robin is a SaaS workplace scheduling and management platform that is modernizing the open office. Back in May, the company raised a $20 million Series B round of funding to help fuel their growth. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like office trends and some interesting office hacks on how to set up your workplace, the background story of Robin and how the company evolved from an agency to a product company, a deep dive into Robin, its platform and the value it provides for their customers, the experience of raising capital through multiple rounds, their thought process behind their pricing model, the three questions Sam uses to evaluate talent, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Have you checked out our YouTube channel? You'll find videos from our podcast, plus lots of other interviews with founders and our very popular Inside series, which gives you an inside look at a functional area and one of the fastest growing tech companies. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sam. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about. Robin is a very uh, fast-moving, growing company in the Boston tech ecosystem that just raised a very large amount of capital. Uh, but being that you know, Robin is ultimately uh, focused on you know powering this you know modern-day office uh, you know setting. Um, what are some of the trends? I thought it'd be fun since this is core to part of how you think. Like, what are some of the trends that you're seeing out there in terms of um, you know office trends and and how companies set up their workplaces? Yes, so I get to be like the amateur uh, interior designer for a minute. Exactly. <laughs> totally. So one of the things that we've kind of seen people have to deal with um, is obviously like. A lot of people sit in something that looks a lot like a cafeteria when they come to work. It's an open office and it's just surrounded by meeting rooms. So what happens is like a lot of those folks really don't have a lot of options to do work other than at your desk or in conference rooms. So one of the biggest themes that we're seeing right now is that like you're starting to see like a variety of options start to enter the workplace beyond just your desk, the kitchen or a meeting room. So one of the things that I particularly like and was very transformative for our, for our org was simply the, taking the conference room table in our main boardroom and making it standing height. Uh, when we did standing height, what happens, and I can't take credit for this, this is one of the things that Herman Miller, one of our investors, uh, introduced me to. They're the furniture folks from Michigan. That's where all the major furniture companies are, by the way. It's a whole thing. I think it's oh, like Michigan. used to float up the river. It's a, I don't know. I haven't done that part of history yet. But um, essentially, the standing at conference room table does a few things. One is that if everyone else is sitting uh, on stools and then someone stands up, you're still at the same eye level. So there's not a weird power dynamic when someone stands up in the middle of a meeting. And then that means that they can stand up, walk around if they need to, if they don't feel like sitting, or walk over to a whiteboard and have an idea without interrupting the meeting. 
So that's something that I highly, highly recommend. Do you think that also helps speed up time of meetings? Because people are kind of standing or kind of sitting on a stool where they're not chit-chatting as much. I don't know. I feel more productive when I'm standing. Yes. You, you see an energy level because like one of the things is that when you, if you're doing a critique of, of someone's work, if you do so in like a lounge or soft seating area, you actually see more people voicing like just criticisms because they feel it's just, I don't, I, I can't, I don't know all of the sides, right? But essentially like people feel like in a position of power in the lounge seating so they can just like flame throw feedback. So that's why like Shark Tank is so funny to look at when you see them in the loungiest of chairs. <laughs> Hello, Shark. Yes. So that's, uh, that's another one to think through. And um, what was your second one? Oh, this one's a good one because it solves uh, part of the problem that we help solve too, which is conference room congestion. Uh, outside of conference rooms, do like a high top table or like two low chairs next to each other. Because what that does is provides people like a warm up or cool down space before and after meetings. So that means that like if you need to linger afterwards and, and debrief, you're not doing it in the outside the conference room. It pulls people out. So that way they're not blocking the next meeting. And as an added bonus, it actually helps the introverts who might not share their real thoughts in the, the meeting itself, but will sidebar with people immediately after. That's a place for them to do that versus just returning to their desk. So those are my two. Got it. Those, that, that's stuff that I haven't heard of. Those are two, I think, like new concepts that must be emerging. And uh, they both make incredible amount of sense. So thanks for sharing those like current office uh, setup hacks. <laughs> so yeah. there's a lot of them. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's go back in time to uh, kind of the formational years of uh, you growing up and, uh, you know, you, you've started companies with your, your brother. So, you know, what was your childhood like? You know, were you always kind of entrepreneurial out there hustling? Um, you know, what was that like? So uh, I started the company with my twin brother, who's one minute old. And we definitely don't dwell on that. And we definitely also uh, look similar enough where people will like confuse us a lot. Mm -hmm. So... And that's a fun one because like, we're not identical, but people debate us on that. And I'm like, where do you think this goes? So <laughs> we, 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 you know, we did the normal kind of lemonade stand type stuff, but it wasn't really until high school and then into college that we really started circling around, not just computer science, but in, in particular, we really liked blogging as well as uh, kind of web design. So one of our first things we did together was um, in college, we both went to the same school, but for different things. I went for marketing and he went for uh, web design. That's University of Hartford. I have to enunciate because I'm from Boston and I don't want to accidentally make myself go to a uh, Ivy League. I, I didn't earn that part. So uh, we started a blog together called Build Internet. And that was a web design development blog, which just offered up tutorials that were immediately implementable in websites, so slideshows and things like that. And we were used by like some of the early Batman movies, uh, Lady Gaga's Perfume, like all of those marketing sites. So that kind of set us up to make, uh, to start receiving a lot of requests to make websites. So we started an agency called One Mighty Roar. So how did like Lady Gaga and, and like the people that are controlling whatever like templates are using for Batman, how'd they discover these? So it just, you started to get this viral following so basically what happened best i can tell 
is that this was right around the time when like BuzzFeed was, this was like 2008 through 2011, we were one of like the top 10 web design development websites. And most people were basically just doing blog posts, which were like top 10 lists. Uh, and we realized that, wait a second, there has to be content that goes into those top 10 lists. So rather than do top 10 lists, we made tutorials that would be good for to be included in other people's top 10 lists. And everything we did was immediately usable. It wasn't, it wasn't something, you could download it, you could implement it, you could know very little, you could know a lot. So we made a lot of people's work very easy because it was, it, we, we did tutorials with the idea that people from random agencies doing websites for these brands would just be able to grab and use them, even if they didn't know it, weren't very technical. But how did you know how to do that? So this was during college, right? So uh, like you're, you obviously, you went to school for marketing, but obviously you thought very deeply about how this should be set up and what's going to attract people to ultimately use it and make it simple. We landed on that by accident almost immediately because we were just using it. We a couple of the other blogs that we liked at the time, like we were big fans. We were learning out loud functionally. We were just posting little things that we thought would be neat. Um, and we like websites at the time, like Smashing Magazine or Envato, which is these whole web design and tutorial um, uh, circuits. So we were learning from those, and then we were kind of like iterating or coming up with our own stuff. And before we knew it, those folks were reaching out to us, including us in their lists and, and articles and everything else. And of course, people wanted to customize what we were doing. So that's kind of how we started getting asked to customize so much that we started an agency that did web design, mobile, and eventually digital at events. And was it always like, uh, hey, you know, we're going to start a company together someday? Like, was that always the kind of the mindset that the two of you had? No, I think that like, we always viewed it as something that we got to do for right now, but weren't sure we were going to get to keep doing later. Um, and we were in college, and that was a little bit of a bubble for us. So we were able to um, we were able to spend that time getting really good at this thing. We didn't really have a lot of responsibilities uh, outside of just being at school. Uh, and it was just fun for us. And I think that like it became, I don't know when exactly it became a business, but it started being popular enough where I remember after sophomore year, we actually, we said to my dad, it was like, look, we just want to like, not, we're going to do this this summer. And he said like, okay, but like you got to make at least $2,000 because that's like what the, uh, the if we had worked part-time, like he, I'd worked at Staples, he had worked somewhere else and I should know that, but it's, it's my story, not his. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so we did that and then uh, we ended up meeting up with a, a guy who's also in the Boston area, Brennan Sieko, who now runs a company called QZAM, which is- uh, Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was in Holyoke and he had some extra office space and we had heard about him because one of our substitute teachers in high school had mentioned, Hey, there's this guy who did, who does websites for bands and he got, he was really young and he got some really big bands, everything from Mick Jagger, Katy Perry to T-Pay. So I was like, Holy smokes. So I just reached out to this guy. It turned out he had space for 300 bucks a month, uh, 160 square feet in Holyoke. And that's what we did for an entire summer. (laughs) So you shared office space with, what was he, was he the, what was his role with the, all these? these? He was running an agency. That did websites for these artists. And we did an agency that basically did the blog and then we buddied up with uh, a lot of bigger agencies and basically just did the development work. 
And that's how we got to like 20 something people and a few million in revenue, like after five years. Well, so, so obviously you uh, had a great summer, right? You made a lot more than I assume the $2,000 your dad was expecting. So I'm sure he was pleasantly surprised that, wait, these guys are onto something. <laughs> yeah. And it was early enough where he could be wrong and still have a cooler than average summer job. Right. You could still go back to Staples and kind of figure it out. Yeah. I was promising printer salesman. Definitely the top one in the, in the East Long Meadow branch. That needs to be on your LinkedIn. I don't, I don't see that on your LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to the endorsements. Just pour them in, pour them in. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a good skill to have. But um, all right, so you, now you did finish school. So you did continue to go to school. Now, so were you running the business and signing up new you know, projects and delivering while you're still getting schoolwork done? <laughs> well, most schoolwork done. We did average out that like, you know, we, we, at the beginning of every semester, we'd each math out like how much of the uh, homework, like we realized in some classes, the homework was less than 10% of your grade. So it didn't make sense to spend 90% of your time. So we were basically doing that sort of a thing. So we, we did that all through, like it wasn't until like junior year where we started getting some really big contracts with some larger like liquor brands, like Bud, we were working with Budweiser, we were working with Chipotle, which I acknowledge is not a liquor brand, but also, but like we were working with a, quite a wide variety of, of those sorts. Uh, and that kind of pulled us into this uh, event space, which is where we really got the early inkling of the idea for Robin. Now, but how did you learn how to build this agency? Uh, you said, you know, some pretty big, big brands there that you're working with. Was that through partnering up with other agencies? And like, just how did you learn how to like run sales, delivery, um, hiring people, managing a, a, a business that, you know, is dr project driven? So in retrospect, it was, uh, I don't know, uh, because it just kept happening. I think that we were, we had, we, we real, we saw a little bit of green field in the sense that, we knew that all these bigger agencies, the tough, because we, we were friends with a handful of founders of the of agencies like Carrot Creative in Brooklyn and, and Prolific Interactive in Brooklyn. So we were hearing a lot of these stories about like how they were getting some business from these bigger brands and bigger agencies that didn't want to do the development work and wanted to focus on the brand positioning and everything else. And that was great for us because we wanted to learn the development stuff. So we were, of course, right there and happy and willing to like actually like make these websites and do the do the role of your sleeves work. And you started to give us, you know, some insight as to what eventually led to what is now Robin. So what what was that initial project, or you know, what led you down the path of recognizing that there could be an actual product that you could spin off? So. One of the things that like a lot of that would naturally lent itself to kind of the nightlife and, and a lot of these like beer and liquor brands was they threw a lot of events. And these were pretty big budget events that needed some sort of a spectacle or novelty that like people would like photograph, share with their friends, share on Facebook. Instagram was just starting to be real. Snapchat wasn't a thing yet. So like uh, basically they had these like episodic budgets that were very project based. So they started throwing these events and they needed like digital ad events. So they needed like tweets to show up on a wall. Right. So we did like a version, an app that did that. And then we were asked to do some other components of the digital experience at the event. So what ended up happening was at a lot of these events, we started a, and I still chuckle at how we like named this, but it was, um, 
we had this product called Buzzband. And I say product because it was like something that we customized almost the majority of every single time. But it was basically an RFID um, uh, kit where basically we'd take a badge, like a bracelet or an RFID badge, and, based, and we knew whose badge it was, so you could scan it at a trade show booth or in a photo booth, and it would recognize who you were and either tag you in the photo or send you the materials from that trade show booth. And like, that's where we first got the idea that like, wait a second, like a space can be helpful if it knows who you are and why you're there. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of this, we got this bug on, you know, like what if a room or a space could react to the people that were using it? And we wanted to do that in a way that didn't involve having to spend thousands or tens of thousands on RFID hardware for a two or three year or two or three day event that just evaporated after three days. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these were like weekend trade shows, weekend concerts, and that was it. So we found that in the office and with Robin. Because it's interesting that it was the event space that kind of had the foundation of the story because I've seen like all these conferences that I've been to, there's always that new app that, hey, you got to download this app and you got to do this, you got to do this, do this, and no one does anything with it. You're exactly <laughs> right. And that's that because it's like people don't want to know anything other than the schedule and the, uh, the menu for the lunch. That's it. If you're building anything else, you're wasting time. No one's going to socially network on your app. Right. But if it was an actual like device that automatically knew you and was, you know, doing things like that would kind of be the less that people need to do, hopefully the more value on the back end that you get in return. So, so then what was the next phase of like, okay, maybe there's an opportunity to bring this into like an open office setting. Like, so, so how did you kind of take that next step? So we thought of the, so in basically in 2014, the start of 2014, we had Zach and I, Zach's my brother, and our other co-founder, uh, Brian, is another, uh, who's now our CTO. Um, he, we all just decided that we looked around and we had 21 people who were working at the company. We were a few million in revenue. And we really just wanted to focus on a product. So what we did was we stopped taking new client stuff. And we just moved everyone over to work on Robin. And what Robin started as was essentially indoor location and automation using Bluetooth beacons, which for those of you uh, that don't know uh, what that is, it's basically like a little chicken nugget size battery powered thing that sends a Bluetooth signal periodically to devices nearby. So it's think about it like a slow pinging sonar that your phone, if it has the right app on it, can detect what beacons nearby and therefore detect what you're close to. So we liked that idea because we thought like, hey, you can walk in a room, know, the room will know you're there, and then we could automate things like meeting, right? Like check into a meeting, put your things on the screen, things like that. We liked that, but what we realized almost immediately is that we can't really automate much of the office if people aren't even getting to their meetings successfully. Like the way I think about it is like kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but for the office, like automation is like self-actualized, is the self-actualized version. Like what really we just needed an inventory of what the hell was happening in the office. And like, that's where we needed to start with uh, scheduling. And we started those iPads outside conference rooms, which one we really ticked up. And in order to do that, like we basically took all of the war chests that we got from One Mighty Roar 
and moved everyone over in the beginning of 2014 to work on Robin. And we funded the first six months until we raised our, uh, our seed round uh, from Accomplice here in Boston. So was that a scary time? Here you have, I'm sure it was a very profitable professional services business uh, to just kind of put all the chips on this product idea that you don't know if A, you could get funded, B, if you're going to get customers to buy it, but you're allocating all your resources to build this thing. Uh, it's in retrospect. Yes. Uh, I think that like, you know, we were used to never have it. We had done the agency for five years and we were like normal for us was we never had more than three to six year, uh, months of runway. So like we, in the beginning, we knew so little that we used to actually save up an entire person's salary for an entire year before we would hire them. So like we knew that we were like very conservative on that. But when we started, when we started looking towards um, kind of just putting all the money into that, we actually thought like, hey, wait a second, we've been running a business for a while. This fundraising thing should be easy. And like, turns out, like, we don't know as much as we, th like agency doesn't count. <laughs> like agency is like project based. So it's like a lot of the mechanics and SaaS, not the same. So it was a little harder than I anticipated. Um, but, you know, we, it taught me a lot in that month in those months and we actually got to over that time period yeah we were hitting our line of credit pretty hard i happened to meet my now wife during that time period so at some there was a little bit of me left in the entire process to like actually be charming enough on that so uh you know it was uh it was probably the toughest when i look back on it but man it didn't feel like it at the time and so so date wise so this is like 2014 then yeah we started robin in the beginning of 2014 yeah Okay. Um, what was it like during those early days of getting, um, you know, the technology built to, uh, you know, start to sell? And, you know, this is a, this market didn't exist at the time, right? Like now when you go into offices, you see Robin or you see some type of infrastructure that's doing things of conference rooms, but this didn't exist when you were starting Robin. There were, yeah, it was, it was, there was definitely, it was one of those things that had languished because there was a, there were like $1,600 custom tablets that you could do mm. outside the conference room. And there were a couple folks that had started to make an app for an iPad, but no one had really started doing, um, kind of taking all of the calendar and the workplace info and making that the starting point. So what we did was rather than start by just doing signage outside the door, we spent all of our time getting really good at making scheduling, making it accurate, because we thought that was the best ledger for what should happen throughout the day. And it was basically the promises everyone was making to the office about what, they, what was gonna happen that day. So we viewed that as like the most core ingredient. And as a result, we built, that's probably our big moat uh, for the first couple of years, which was scheduling and the, how we could scale that. And were you going after selling this to um, larger enterprises that had, you know, just massive amounts of space and conferences, or was it more of the like a mid-sized companies that you saw attraction at first? Mid-sized because we didn't have any of the right check boxes for enterprise at the time. So what we did realize was that basically the people that had to deal with stolen meeting rooms, no-show meetings, or even scheduling, or find me a room, those were the office managers or the receptionists. And maybe IT people, because they had to like 
sign off on the security side. So yeah, it did tend to skew towards the under 250 headcount orgs, but we actually realized inadvertently that like, hey, like these office managers who basically have to run what some call even like an adult Chuck E. Cheese, which is like the chaperone the entire office on that, they had to deal with the fallout, so they actually have a lot of sway in the smaller in the smaller uh, organizations. And once we got approved by um, by the office or IT, if they existed, there was no reason why we couldn't land and expand to other offices within that organization. So that's how we early days started to get some of our bigger organizations. So you said you you raised capital from Accomplice uh, with, within six months after kind of putting all the chips in. So, so how, how did that? Yeah, it was summer. It was summertime. So yeah, it was. Uh, we moved everyone over in January. So what yep. was what was that process like? I mean, just trying to, like you said, you were ran a professional services firm, building products, you know, selling that, scaling it, having the right size market, all those details that VCs look for. You know, it's, that's not an easy thing to do. So how did you raise capital? Well, we. Um, I think that. One of our strengths was that we were, we were not just like a couple of people looking for a technical co-founder. We were an organization of technical co-founders. So there was a lot of the engineering horsepower and the product thinking in the early days. So it wasn't just a bunch of sales guys that were trying to like, you know, outsource it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the promise of indoor location was probably an exciting early one, but also like the idea that like, people in space are the two most expensive parts of most people's balance sheets. So like if we were doing something that helped optimize that in the workplace, like that made, that seems like a big market there. And this was before WeWork was meaningfully involved or any of that sort of like flex space uh, narrative was, was really coming to fruition. Were you ever like uh, either advised or were pulled into other directions? Cause this technology could have been used in other ways. Like I just remember retail was supposed to be doing these, you know, low power Bluetooth, you know, as soon as you walk into the store, it would tell you, hey, Keith, you like shirts that are red and by, by, by the way, they're for sale, right? There's a the sale yeah. of markdown. So were you ever distracted or was it always like, hey, we're focused on this particular space. We want to own it. We, we had learned, we, we were focused on the workplace. We were definitely asked to do uh, some of our early beacon work in other places, but we knew from the event space how the drop-off looked after event, like if you didn't regularly come back to the same space. So like for me, retail was one we were very commonly asked for, hotels were another, and it made no sense uh, because uh, basically you're not gonna download an app for a, a hotel you stay at once or you know things like that. So you need, we needed a place that you came back to every day. And that's the office. Got it. Well, let's fast forward to today. So Robin, um, how has the product evolved? Like what's the current state of the platform? So for our first few years, our rallying cry was really scheduling for the office and everything in it. And we realized, well, that's awfully broad. Um, and really the part that we liked from scheduling was really an awareness of what needed to happen in the office and how, and what people intended to do. So what we did was over this past year in the back half of 2018 and then 20, and then here forward, um, we really started to look at workplace. So basically everything from the door frame of the meeting room out. We'll let the video conferencing guys duke it out inside and look, there we integrate with all of them and, and it's fine and they're great. And like we use like 
love Zoom to death, right? But like, those are the sorts of things where we didn't want to get distracted by the AV battle inside. So we wanted to be helpful enough to the employees out on the floor through things like meeting room reservations, desks and seat assignments, which includes hot desking, but also just an awareness of the seating chart, as well as um, maps of the actual office. Uh, this was actually something that like was stunning to me because like my two favorite stories, uh, one is that there's a large company here in Boston that every Thursday at three o'clock would send an intern around with a clipboard to tally how many desks were being used and how many conference rooms. And this company, which will remain unnamed, uh, uh, basically used that plus interviews with their department heads to equal their new, uh, shall we say, tens of millions of dollar headquarters here in uh, downtown. So um, those, there's a scarcity of data uh, on that one. And then on the other one, it's the idea that like people have no awareness of what their office floor plan looks like because it's, at best case scenario, a printout that's stuck to the wall. And that's because there's this pretty sleepy category as we stumbled into, um, which was uh, workplace management. It's basically a, uh, a facilities tool, which is like IBM is one of the biggest contenders here. It's a full, almost 40 year old industry and it's everything from building automation to energy management, to waste management, to compliance, to project management. It's all the things that facilities needs to make it go. And there's two things that don't make sense over there in 2019, which is resource scheduling and space management, because those involve stakeholders like IT and need an employee facing experience. And the thing is, those tools were built when the office stood still. So now that people are moving around, they've lost the threat. So they need to involve the employees and need to involve scheduling in order to get an awareness of what's being used, what's not. Got it. Okay. Now, so you recently uh, raised your most recent round of funding, $20 million. So what, what was that process like of going out and you know, raising this, this round of capital? Um, so seed round is basically throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Series A is basically showing that you can get a couple things to stick against that wall and with a couple customers or more customers there. And then uh, series B is like all about proving it, right? Like, okay, do the metrics make sense? It's much more um, kind of, okay, now if we, if we start duplicating some of these cogs, can we make this a big machine? So for us, it's like, it made us have to be a sales and marketing org in a way that we hadn't been before. Uh, so that was a big one for us. Um, and really having to articulate something that was bigger than just scheduling. Uh, and we knew what we were building, but we had to articulate it in a way that kind of connected the dots like I had just put together in terms of the workplace management side. So it was really finding our voice on that and then, and then things clicked. And how did you go about building up you know, the marketing function and then the, the go-to-market function with you know sales and like figuring out the right sales model for your product so we always charge so we knew that like we could charge per user or square footage and like that's how some people do it but when we told people when we were testing out that pricing in the beginning like you see people pause and like try to process like okay how much square footage like it wasn't something an office manager knew offhand but what they did know was generally how many rooms they had, give or take one or two. So we started charging per room. 
and we charge per room per desk. And it's because we, in the furniture and architecture worlds, it's about the ratio is like one conference room for every 10 to 15 people. So we knew we were getting within the overall headcount. And it also felt like it was a safe enough bet for someone to say, yeah, we have five conference rooms versus we have 120 employees today. We might have 125 tomorrow. That just makes pricing complicated. So it was the simplest one that got the fastest yes. Yeah, no, that's, that's the right way to do it. Like simplicity uh, goes so much further than complexity and bundling and all these crazy things that, uh, you know, you just build layers of confusion and, uh, I just, I, I, I try to avoid that at all costs with venture fizz and our pricing. <laughs> it's simple. It's, this is what it costs. This is what you get. Uh, now, now that you've raised your, uh, series B, like what's the plans for growing the company? Uh, I assume you're doing a lot of hiring. Yeah, we've done a lot of hiring. I think we were in the low sixties at the beginning of the year. Uh, we're about to cross a hundred. And I think the goal right now, last I checked is like, um, like double, basically it crossed the 120 mark by the end of the year. So it's like, We've got um, we expanded into the first floor of our, we've now got two floors over in Fort Point in Boston. Um, and, you know, for me, it's really a matter of getting uh, a lot of folks in the room who have done this before. We're starting to hire some pretty ex experienced people with some specialties that I wouldn't have known how to even articulate this time last year um, around like data and, uh, you know, we've had some really strong engineering talent coming forward as well. So I feel like we've got a good alignment across the board on that one. And, you know, a big learning moment for me was really starting to move into more of like the, you can't have heroic moments amongst your like early employee teams always. So like later you have to start like taking the time to teach other people how to do things or in, in the ideal case, learning how to do things from people you bring in versus just trying to figure out a way to, to, to uh, do it all yourself. And that was one breakthrough moment that really took a lot of uh, the time leading right up to the Series B. We brought in a lot of really equipped people to help. Well, as you are hiring, how, how do you evaluate talent? Like, how do you determine, like, I, 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 you know, as I was kind of doing my homework to prepare for this conversation, I noticed that there was three questions that are like your go-to to, to help you evaluate people. Yes. Um, what do you tend to be the best person in the room at? And then you say, what are you the go-to person for amongst your team? Which is a way of validating that first question. And the third one is, where do you tend to get in your own way? Um, and my answers to those, I also, also volunteer because I want people to know that like, it's very disarming when the person interviewing you tells you their weakness too. So like, I tend to be the best person in the room at phrasing things. That means people come to me for email writing and objection handling, and that's my superpower. I get really high open rates. Um, not to sound pretentious, but I did write a blog post on it. I've written very few blog posts on this topic, but like that was like, I always feel like, the, oh yeah, like I wrote a blog post. No, I'm not that guy. But I, some people have found it helpful some of the time. Uh, and then I get my own way because look, I'm a good uh, opener and closer. It takes me a lot of focus to be, do that relentless follow-up in the middle. So, for me, it's a matter of having people establish the confidence to say, I tend to be better than most people at this thing. Um, and then the adjacent one to that is like above all else, the most important thing for me is people with internal locus of control, not external. Put another way, not to sound kumbaya, 
you happen to the world, the world doesn't happen to you. You got pulled over because you were driving too fast, not because the cops were bored. And it was, it's that idea that like, you can't be blocked if you're internally driven. Uh, versus every time I've messed up a hire, it's been because I hired a charismatic person with an external locus of control. Let's, so what were those three questions again? Because I think I missed the second one. So it was, what are you the best at? What do you tend to be the best person in the room at? What are you the go-to person for amongst your team? And where do you get in your own way? Got it. No, that's awesome. Those are great questions. Um, now, you, other than maybe like an internship, like you haven't, and maybe, you know, working at smaller companies like, or like, you know, jobs like Staples, right? So in your foundational years, uh, but coming out of college, you already owned your own company. So it's not like you went, uh, graduated from your undergrad and started your career working for company X, then moved to Y, then started a company. So how did you learn how to lead a company as a CEO? And who do you count on for mentorship? So I, base, I, we have a, we've had a couple of people that basically, I always think about it in terms of you have a peers, role models, and mentor, uh, mentors, and then role models. Uh, peers are people that are going through the same stuff as you. Role models are a couple years ahead of you that you aspire to be, uh, or mentors are. And then role models are the people that if I nail it, I hope, hope, hope I hit that level of success. So like for me, one of the people that I got to meet very early was actually, I was fortunate to meet, get interact with a handful of agency folks, but also like Paul English locally uh, here in town, you know, founder of Kayak. Um, so he, you know, and he was starting Blade, which became, um, which became uh, Lola, which is what he's doing today. Like they, they worked out of our office for a little bit. I did the logo and all the branding for Blade. We did Wait, our- did, did, Okay, I was gonna say, did you do the bands that were that oh, you yeah, walked yeah. up to the Blade Bar? I was gonna tell you your favorite drink. I, I, okay, because when you were talking about, it, I'm like, this sounds like what Blade had originally. Yeah, so they had like a custom baked version of part of what we were doing. But yeah, so I got to I got to see like what really good looked like pretty early, uh, and again, really you get obsessed with it because you wanna you wanna be a fraction of what 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 he did. Uh, with kayak. So I think that like, I've always gone out of my way to really, really try to always have the, the role models and mentors that I can aspire to learn from in different ways. Now, obviously, you're busy building a company. So um, I'm sure you're, you know, heads down, laser focused. But uh, when you do have time outside of work, like what, what else do you like to do? Okay, so I've been like, recently, my, my wife started telling me I needed more hobbies and video games are not an acceptable hobby. So uh, as something that kind of overlaps and is also super on brand is I've gotten really not into woodworking, but into kind of like basic set like furniture and uh, uh, kind of like wall panels. Uh, okay, this sounds remarkably specific, but like here, check, this, check out how dope this is. Okay, so, so do you see, that's what a moss wall looks like. Okay. Uh, so those things are, and there's a couple of other examples around like office that you actually realize it's just a bunch of like random rectangles that can be glued together. And the furniture world charges like three grand for these things. Mm. So, and it's like 200 bucks worth of materials. So I've been really obsessed with not necessarily the woodworking and furniture creation, but more of those like in between sort of like desk shelves, knickknacks, like literally the things that help you organize your space. And I've been making a lot of those and then translating them back into the office itself too. 
Sounds like a good opportunity for a DIY series on YouTube. <laughs> well, let me tell you, the one channel that's always on TV at home, my wife watches HGTV, Chip and Joanna Gaines, mm -hmm. huh, uh, big time. So like, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Isn't it great when you watch those channels now, how many advertisers of Boston companies? Yes. And it also empowers people like myself to feel way over equipped and really we're underprepared <laughs> to do half this stuff. But man, I try. <laughs> I like that DIY stuff. Yeah. Well, Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and all the great things you're up to with Robin and, and obviously your brother, Zach, too. And then, um, and then obviously, uh, you know, Robin is hiring. So uh, if you are interested in exploring opportunities with the company, you can find all their listings on VentureFizz, which is VentureFizz.com backslash Robin. That's their biz page. So they have all their job openings, plus a lot about the company and culture there. But uh, Sam, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.